Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Oh, good morning. Good to see you on what feels like fall, which is pretty great. Apparently, it won't be the case Tuesday when summer makes a comeback. Um, but good to see all of you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 28. If you don't, there is one beneath the chair in front of you or near you. Uh, one thing, uh, and we've mentioned this uh, over the last few weeks, is that next week uh, we're going to celebrate baptisms. And um, if you're here and you are interested in that, myself and Joel Carlman, who's sitting right over there, are going to be down front after. Um, and there's going to be a few of us getting together to learn more about that. And so we'd love for you to join us if you have any questions or if you have any interest. Uh, we'd love to have that conversation with you. Uh, let's pray, pause and pray, and then we'll jump into the teaching. God, we come to you together this morning and we do so, as we've already acknowledged, uh, troubled over all that we see happening in our world. And I ask that you would give us this morning uh, a sense of comfort, that you would in some ways challenge us to truly consider how we can be you in this world of ours. We pray these things together in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Matthew chapter 28, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know we've been talking about like what is the church? What is this thing that we call the church and why are we doing this? And we talked in our first week together about what are we going to pass on to those who come after us? That for generations and generations, one group of people have handed something over to another. Last week, if you were with us, Jonathan Merritt, our friend, was here and spoke about this idea of it's a place to belong. And this week, we want to talk about what does it mean for us to live day in and day out as a piece of this. Verse 18, it says this, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, these words are given at the 
end, or the last words of Jesus at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the Gospel of Matthew is 27 chapters. There's 27 chapters before this. It's 28 chapters long, which makes you realize this feels like a very abrupt ending to the story. I mean, Matthew begins with Jesus as a child. And he tells the story of Jesus and his family making an escape to Egypt because they're under threat by King Herod. And then he talks about their return from Egypt. He talks about Jesus' baptism. Talks about his calling of his disciples. He, he talks about his ministry where he begins teaching. He details his miracles. He records the stories or the parables that Jesus tells. He talks about Jesus' conflict with the religious. Talks about Jesus going to Jerusalem, his triumphal entry, his last meal with the disciples. He gives all the details of Jesus' arrest and his trial. Jesus being paraded through the streets and nailed to an execution stake. Talks about what it was like when Jesus breathed his last breath and when he was buried. And then it's like Jesus resurrects, tells him to go to Galilee and says, peace, I'm out of here. And you're like, that was, that was a really abrupt ending to a very long story. Now, depending on how you come to these words, it can do one of two things. One of the things it can do is it can feel like the last word versus a first word. You see, a last word is something that ends conversation. I mean, if you've ever been around young children, the tendency is, a lot of last words, especially around bedtime. Am I right, parents? Go to bed. That should be a last word. And yet, somehow children become most affectionate at around 8.30 at night and want to say goodnight to you seven, eight, or nine times. And in my phrase to my children growing up, I would say, please act like you've gone to bed before. You just want the last word. You say something, conversation's over. Now what is left is to go and do whatever was said. And that's often how we come to these words. Go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching and obey everything I've commanded you. Great. And it doesn't take a lot of reading to recognize that a lot of people believe this is a last word. Do it. It's right there. Go, make, baptize, and teach. Why do you have any questions about this? Time is wasting. And when we take it like that, it's almost as though like Jesus, like he gave us a list. Which makes me wonder, like, is, is this what Jesus would do? Is like give us a list of things to do? Now, some of you people who are here, you love lists. You live for lists. You wake up in the morning thinking about the lists and you get some sort of deep pleasure in deep places within you when you can cross something off that list. And so the idea of Jesus giving a list, you're like, of course, yeah, no, this is what we're supposed to do. But oftentimes what can happen with this kind of thinking are what I like to call the oughts and shoulds of religion. These are the things we're supposed to do. We ought to do this. We should do this. And it's almost as though we're supposed to do these things because it's going to get us somewhere. 
And so we have this like future destination in mind. And the only way we're going to get there is by executing certain number of things. This is the last word. Jesus said, go, we're going to do that. This, by the way, is baked into our culture, so I'm not surprised it's made its way into our religious tradition. I mean, just think about our education system. From kindergarten on through, there are things you have to do. And you have to do these things so that you can get to the end of the school year with a passing grade. And just when you think you've gotten there, all of a sudden there's another grade ahead of you. And then there's a whole new list of things to do. And then there's another grade and another grade. And eventually, you may graduate from high school and you may choose to go on to college, and it's more of the same. And then when you leave college, you might get a job. And when you get a job, it's more of the same. Things that you are supposed to do. And the thing that we're going after the whole time is always ahead of us. And so we try to climb the corporate ladder. We try to become more successful. There's all sorts of things we're attempting to do like we're trying to get somewhere. And we live most of our lives believing that whatever place we're trying to get to or whatever thing is going to satisfy us, that if we just do enough of these things, we'll get there. But how often have we heard about people who actually have made it or gotten to the top or been wildly successful who are always saying to those who have yet to get there, It's not worth it. There's a whole book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes that's about the meaninglessness and the futility of living life this way. More recently, you have sages like Jim Carrey, who in 2005 said, I wish everyone could get as much wealth as I had and as much fame as I had just so they would see it doesn't satisfy anything. Aaron Rodgers, in an interview after winning the Super Bowl with the Green Bay Packers, hasn't won one since, sorry, cheeseheads, talked about being in the team bus on the way to the Super Bowl party, holding the Super Bowl trophy, the apex of his career, and he said he had a moment where he looked up at the trophy and thought, is this what I've spent my whole life going for? And we hear those stories and we're like, yep, yep, totally get it, that's the right, absolutely the right. But somehow it doesn't seem to deter us from that kind of living where something is said or a goal is given and we say, okay, these are the things that we need to do. I mean, the the faith that I grew up within, the goal was always heaven. And the way to get to heaven was by doing a certain number of things and even more importantly, not doing a whole bunch of things. And if you could do and not do a whole bunch of things, then you'd get to heaven. There was a word given. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what you're supposed to not do. The last word. You couldn't ask questions. You just had to do it. And it's so fascinating how at some level of unconscious awareness, we, or I should say, yeah, unconscious unawareness, that we read these things into the text. But I wonder, like, if you're a disciple, or you're one of the women in this story, you're one of the others, and you had walked around with Jesus for three years, you had spent time with him, you had walked along the way, you had meals with him, you watched his interactions, 
Would you hear him giving you a list? Would this be for you the last word? And you just go and make and baptize and teach and don't ask any questions. Or is it possible that this is a first word? Is it possible that this is the beginning of conversation? Is it possible that Matthew gives us 27 chapters about Jesus' life only to get to the 28th chapter and ending it abruptly as a way of saying, so what do you think? Have you ever watched a film and it's going along and going along and going along and you're like, I think I know where this is going. And then the main character is in this beautifully shot scene and they look at someone else and they're like, I think this is it. And the screen goes to black, and you're like, no, 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 no. And then the credits start rolling. You know what I'm talking about? And you look at the person you're watching it with, and you're like, what was that about? Well, what that was about is oftentimes a filmmaker is saying, I want you now to go and continue talking about the story. Because in some ways, films that leave questions and create conversation are far better than films that don't like Marvel movies. They always finish with like a bow on it, and if they don't, you're like, well, there's gonna be a sequel, and it'll explain it all. But what if, these, what if Matthew's gospel is in some senses a first word, saying, why don't you go and talk about it? I've often said here at Denver Community Church, I think the sermon should be the beginning of a conversation. I've had people over the years be like, why don't you tell us what to do? Because I don't want to. My hope is that you'll go and you'll have things to talk about. What if this is what Matthew's doing? What if this is what those who are in that mountain or on that mountain in Galilee were thinking when they saw Jesus pull a David Blaine up into the clouds? Like, they look at each other and now what? Maybe we could ask this, what did they hear when they heard Jesus' words? And maybe, if we hear Jesus' words again, with a little more depth, we'll begin to gain some insight on exactly what it is they heard. The first thing that Jesus says to them is this, as you go. Now, I know in our translation it says go, but one of the things that's important to remember is that the Hebrew and Christian scriptures were written in an ancient language. The Hebrew scriptures were written in Hebrew, and the Christian scriptures, like Matthew, were written in ancient common Greek, not classical Greek, like we might still have floating around in university settings. Ancient Greek. And because it's a foreign language to modern English like we speak here in the United States, there are some things that break down in translation, and the word go is, in fact, one of them. It's a verb, and it has a particular tense and a particular mood, and it's hard to translate it in a way that sounds like the way we would typically talk. But the tense of this particular verb actually translates more like, hey, as you go, or in your going, or as you go about your daily life, it's not head in this direction as much as it is live with a constant awareness of what your life is about. If someone were to walk up to you and say, what's your life about? 
Would you have a response? Would you have an understanding? Would you have this sense of like, yeah, no, I know exactly what my life is about. And I live each and every day, everywhere I go, with a particular bearing and a particular awareness and a particular way of life that's top of mind. Jesus isn't saying go there. He's saying anywhere you go, as you go, in your daily life, he says, make disciples. Now, the word disciples is kind of a fancy word for student. We can put up make disciples. It'll come up. There it is. It's a fancy word for student. Now, this is an important thing to point out because remember, this is an ancient Near Eastern context. We live in a modern Western context. Many of us in this room have been students at one time or another in a classroom. Now, when I was a student in the classroom, what I would often do is just get as much information stuck into every fold of my brain and hold it there as long as possible until there was an exam, and then I would vomit all the information out on the exam, and then I would get a grade. Now, thankfully, I had a pretty good memory, and so I could store a lot of information in there, and so I did pretty well in school. But that's not what disciples in the first century did. There were no quizzes. There were no exams. In fact, disciples were those who learned by following after their rabbi, which just means teacher. They learned with their feet, it's been said. They learned by walking around with and watching this individual. Now, if you think about the kind of people that you wish to learn from, it's typically not people with an encyclopedic knowledge of almost everything. We call them know-it-alls. And let's be honest, they're annoying. You're eating a strawberry and they're like, I know we call these strawberries, but did you know they're not berries? Botanists would call this a false fruit or pseudocarp. And you're like, I do not care and I hate you. Like, honestly, knowledge is kind of fun. Trivia is kind of fun. But who are the people that we like to learn from? Who are the people we feel drawn to? It's people who wear hard-earned melancholies like a cloak, isn't it? People who have wisdom born of experience. When I first started out as a pastor... I was mentored by a guy named Ed. Now, Ed had written a bunch of books. Ed was uh, considered, he was actually voted pastor of the year. Did you know that's an award? I don't know what you get for it, but if I ever happened to me, I'd be wearing that on my t-shirt every freaking Sunday. And I would remind you, my name's Michael, voted pastor of the year in 2000, whatever. Ed was voted pastor of the year in some Christian magazine. People loved to hear Ed preach. Now, I can tell you about all the knowledge I learned from Ed. I can tell you about all of the feedback he gave me when I would preach sermons. Like one time I preached a sermon that was absolute rubbish. And the next day I went to his office and he said, you know when you preach a really good sermon and people tell you it's a home run? And I was like, yeah. He's like, your sermon yesterday was a weak grounder to first. It's like, well, at least he's honest. But what happened shortly after I started working with Ed is one day he called me into his office and he told me that he had been diagnosed with ALS or more commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. 
And I was stunned. I thought he was going to quit on the spot. But he didn't. And for four years in working with Ed, I walked alongside a man where I saw his body decline. I saw him sit and talk honestly about fear. I saw him sit and talk honestly about the moments where if I get another Bible verse from someone as a thing of encouragement, it's going to send me through the roof. I saw honesty. I saw courage. I saw someone die well. And the last time I saw Ed, he couldn't use his arms anymore. And he came and he leaned his frail frame into me and I gave him a big hug. And in his slurred speech, he said, Michael, I love you and I'm proud of you. That was it. He walked down the stairs and I never saw him again. When I talk about my mentor, I'm not talking about the fact that I would watch him preach and learn how to take the high step and all these big body motions. I'm talking about I watched someone suffer and love and trust honestly in the midst of it. This is what the disciples were about. They wanted to know everything they could about their rabbi, not just being book smart, but actually being people who took on their way of life. This is what Jesus is saying to them. Invite people into your life in the same way I invited you into mine. And when you've done that, he says, immerse them or baptize them is the word. Into the dynamic, loving relationship that we call God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Today we call this the Trinity. The Trinity is, as Miroslav Volf says, is this relationship of divine, mutual, self-giving love where the Father is continually pouring himself out into the Spirit and into Jesus. And Jesus is pouring himself out to the Spirit and to the Father. And the Spirit is continually pouring herself out to the Father and to Jesus. Jesus is saying, immerse them in that. Invite them in that kind of relationship. Father Richard Rohr talks about the Trinity and says, the Trinity is a relationship where all three beings are continually creating space for the other. This is why he refers to it as the divine dance. And he, he suggests in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, when they talk about participating in the life of God, that God is always wanting to make room for you and for me and for everyone to join into that dance. That God wants to make space for you and for me and for all of us. And then he says, and then instruct them in the practice as it says in the message translation. Instruct them in the practice of my way of life. Teach them what it was like when you saw me loving and healing. Teach them what it was like when you saw me weep over those who wanted to kill me. Teach them what it was like when little kids would run up 
And some of you tried to keep them away from me because you thought I was too dignified and important to give my time to children. Teach them what it was like when I told you to bugger off, which is a loose translation of the Greek, and called the children to me and said, this is what I want people in my kingdom to be like. Teach them what it was like when we were walking and we had those one-off conversations about the problems you were having with your parents. Teach them what it was like when you saw me go into places that nobody was supposed to ever go because of religious reasons, teach them what it was like when you saw me speaking truth to power. That's what I want you to teach them. Instruct them in the practice that I, that I showed you, that I modeled for you. Maybe this is what those who were in or on that mountain in Galilee heard Jesus talk about. Maybe for them it was, in fact, a first word because you might be sitting here going, well, what does it mean to join the life of God? What does it mean to instruct them in practice? What does it mean to invite someone to follow me? Exactly. We're left asking questions. Maybe this is the reason Matthew took 27 chapters to finally get to chapter 28 and offer these words because there's something in these 27 chapters that we're supposed to pay attention to and that we're supposed to observe and that we're supposed to take on us because the church has long held that these words that were given to those on that mountain in Galilee were not just for them but actually it's for the church. And that all of us are supposed to join in this movement that was started in the backwoods of Israel in the northern part of Galilee 2,000 years ago. That Matthew wasn't offering the last word, he was offering us a first word. He was inviting us into conversation, inviting us to be the ones who interact with the life of Jesus by reading his story together. I mean, if that wasn't the case, Matthew could have saved a lot of time and effort and just said, hey, by the way, Jesus rose from the dead and said, go and do these things, so go and do them. But instead, he told us the story. And here's one other thing that I think the disciples would have heard. There's this uh, tradition in the first century with rabbis and disciples that like the disciples didn't necessarily graduate, but all Jewish teachers, all rabbis had disciples and there would come a time where they would say to the disciples, I think we're done here. But they didn't say it like that. They would actually bless them. And they would say to them, now go and make many disciples. Jesus is not using any language that's uncommon to his day. But here's the key. Rabbis would only say that to their disciples when they believed the disciples had become enough like them to go and to make disciples. What Jesus is saying to those with an earshot is, hey, you've become enough like me to go and do this. And here's why I point that out. Matthew gives this little detail right at the beginning of the words that we read. In verse 17, this is what it says. When they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Thanks, Debbie Downer. I imagine like there was like, at least a few people 
who Matthew was like, hey guys, I wrote this book. And they were like, awesome. And they read the whole thing and really enjoyed it. And then they got to the end and they're like, that son of, I shared that with him in confidence. Thanks, Matthew, you know. Here's what I love about this. Not only is it terrible propaganda, by the way, like if you really want to convince people, what I love about it is it's just honest. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, but I assume some of you are here in the room and you've had doubts. I can tell you I've had doubts. I still have doubts. In some ways, the more I learn and I realize the more I have to learn and the less I know all the time, sometimes the doubts increase. But what I love is Matthew doesn't make a statement here. There's nothing condemnatory. He just says, well, some people were doubting. What I love even more is Jesus doesn't say, therefore, those of you who are worshiping me, go. Those of you who are doubting, leave and don't come back until you are certain about your faith. I don't know that Jesus would have talked like that, but every time I find myself quoting him, that's how I talk. Jesus just says it freely to everyone. Hey, those of you who are doubting, those of you who are worshiping, I have an invitation for you. Live with some intention. Live with an awareness of what your life is about, a life that's oriented around me. Because I believe you've become enough like me, and so now I want you to go and do what I did. I want you to invite people into your life, into your circles, into your community, so that you can show them and teach them what the life of God is like, a life of divine, mutual, self-giving love, where we are always making more space for the other to join in and feel and be embraced and be held by divine love, so it will work its way into them and threw them out into the world so that you can go and do the things that you saw me do in this world. This is what I'm inviting you into. So often I hear people when we talk about faith, when we talk about verses like these, like almost disqualify themselves because they don't have the answers. Remember, Jesus is speaking to people, one of which was Peter, who had betrayed him, who lied about knowing him days before this. And Jesus didn't say, therefore, go, except for you, Peter. You and I need to have a conversation first. It was 11 teenagers. It was a group of women. It was a group of people who hung out with this marginalized, crucified person, and Jesus said, you are my plan A. And thousands of years later, we're here because somehow within a few hundred years, this little movement that Jesus started became the most influential movement that threatened the foundations of the Roman Empire. Maybe what Matthew's offering us is not the last word, but the first word. For us to continue to be invited, for us to continue to wrestle with the implications of this, and for us to discover again and again what this looks like in our lives here today. One way that we attempt to understand, to wrap our heads and our hearts around the implications of this is by participating each week in Eucharist. 
And we use the word participate very intentionally because it's not something that's apart from us, but it's something that's a part of us because we are the body of Christ. And so we consume who we are. And when we participate in this, we don't say, well, here's the bar that you have to cross so that once you're over it, you can now participate. No, we say like Jesus, come, all of you who are weary, and I'll give you rest. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Come and eat and come and drink. Remember who you are and whose you are, that this is not a worthiness contest. Rather, it's a celebration that all of us are worthy because God is good and God is loving. And so as we prepare to come, let me read these words of liturgy. This is not the table of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and all of us who have failed. Come, because it is the Lord who invites you. And it is his will that those who would want him should meet him here. And we invite you to come we have stations on the sides and stations down front. We invite you to take a piece of bread and as you do, hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, and then to dip it in the cup. And as you do, to hear the words, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And as you prepare to come, hear these words from the Gospel of Matthew. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You may come when you're ready. Thank you for engaging our teaching with us as we continue to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in the world. Before you go, we wanted to highlight a few things going on in the life of our community. As DCC, we recognize that everyone has unique gifts that we can use to serve others. Our care team is designed to connect people who would like to share their gifts and time with people who need support in their current season. Whether you're able to make food, deliver a meal, run errands, do yard work, pray over someone, or just sit with someone and listen to their story, we invite you to share those gifts with others. You can sign up to provide or receive care at our website, denverchurch.org. To stay connected with all that is happening in the life of our community, we encourage you to sign up for our weekly email or download our DCC app. Again, thank you for joining us on our podcast today. It is always great to be together. Thank you.